It's fitting that on January 1st, we're starting a new study. Uh, As I fill in on the gaps when Matt isn't teaching Romans, Um, and that study is Ecclesiastes. I've kind of, we worked through the, we worked through the Psalms, the Messianic Psalms, and, and I have a, a desire to continue to help you all see and value the Old Testament and what God has revealed there. And so I made the plan to go into Ecclesiastes and posted on Facebook a little over a month ago the contrast between Job and Ecclesiastes and what, what that would mean for us. Job is when bad things happen to somebody that doesn't deserve it. And how do we explain it and how do we deal with it? Ecclesiastes kind of builds on that and also tries to answer the question, why is it that good things happen to people who don't deserve it the other way around? It's an interesting choice. Um, I'm a little scared to teach it after teaching Job and going through 2022 following that I don't know what God has planned for Ecclesiastes certainly in my life and our life as a church but um, it's uh, the laugh that I received when I just told somebody we were going to teach it is probably appropriate that that's are you crazy was what the tone was Um, and it might be so I've, I've titled this series in Ecclesiastes, Futility Under the Sun. And I guess I, the question that I have that I want you guys to bear in your heart is what if God created this whole world totally capable of displaying his wrath on every single one of us, including our family members, our children, our, our parents, our friends, our loved ones, our co-workers, what if he did all that, created this world totally capable of displaying his wrath on everyone, and decided to take some of us and display his glory through those on whom he would have mercy? What if everything in this world that you experience, that you touch, that you see, that you feel is actually about God himself and his glory? Whether that's eternal punishment in hell, bringing glory to God, or your eternal salvation. What if that's what this is all about? And I think that's the answer that we get from Ecclesiastes. That's what we're looking about. This is all about God. Now, The author of Ecclesiastes is Solomon. He's going to make that clear. But we turn to the other book of Solomon's Proverbs, or one of the other books of Solomon, Proverbs. And probably the the greatest thing my father ever did for me is he paid me a dollar per verse in Proverbs that I led. And the stupidest thing I ever did was I only learned 30 verses. Um, But the one in in my youth talking six, seven years old, the verse that is always stuck in my mind is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So before we enter into Ecclesiastes, I think you have to have a handle on that. And I've seen people try to explain away what the fear of the Lord is, that the fear of the Lord is just a respect for his it's reverence. It's giving him respect. It's not. Nowhere else do we, do we translate that word fear as anything but being afraid. 
What should you fear the Lord for? You should fear the Lord because you know what? He punishes sin and we're all sinners. We should fear the Lord because it is through him that grace is given. Again, what if it's all about God and his interaction with us? And that's what, that's what Solomon gives us. He gives us the key to Ecclesiastes in that verse there in Proverbs. Fear means to be afraid. To understand wisdom and instruction is to take everything you learn, anything you learn, whether it's in school, from the media, on Facebook, anywhere, and say, how do I apply the fear of the Lord to this? Would God want me to do this? Is this wholesome? Is this, is this something that actually honors God? Is this knowledge that actually lifts him up and glorifies him? Would he be happy that I'm viewing this? If he was here, would I be afraid of him? And if so, maybe I shouldn't do it. Would he, would he honor me? Would he lift me up if I'm not doing these things or if I, if I do what is good? That's the filter that we look at all things through. As we look at Ecclesiastes then, Ecclesiastes 1, and we'll read down through verse 3. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? And we'll just get through the introduction today because I can't teach the rest of it for a while. Because it is hard. It's a hard thing to look at. It's a hard thing for us as a church, I think, to look at right now. Just breaking this down, the words of the preacher, this, this word preacher isn't found elsewhere in the Old Testament. Solomon is the only one who declares himself a preacher. And, and the word there isn't what we typically think of as a preacher, but probably actually should. In that the word is, actually means a collector, a gatherer. And someone who takes that collection and conveys it to people. He's a conveyor. And, and we see that certainly in our preaching today. You sit and you listen to somebody who's gathered things up and now they're going to convey it to you. They're going to collect these things and give them to you. Proverbs is a collection of wisdom that Solomon has brought together. And that's what he's known for, is bringing together this collection of wisdom. He's, he's going to make this point again, only this time... Throughout the book, we're going to not see him bringing forth the wisdom of God, per se, but he's going to be showing us the wisdom of men. What does the wisdom of men say? And compare that to what is it that God sees. So the preacher is the gatherer, conveyor, or the collector of these, of these bits of knowledge and understanding. And... The next title he has is the son of David. So son of David should make us, there, there, there's, there's two people basically in the Bible that are referred to as the son of David, and Solomon is one of them. Who is the other one? Jesus. You guys can say it louder. Otherwise, I think you're th speaking in tongues out there. It's Sunday school answer. It is. This is the ultimate Sunday school answer. It's Jesus, son of David, Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. That's describing who Christ is. Mark 10.47 is, is, son of David, have mercy on me. 
believes is uh, blind man Artemis, crying out to the son of David, understanding that that son of David is a, is a royal line title. It's a covenant title. It's the title of those that would be in the line of David going forward. Back in, we'll turn to it, 2 Samuel 7. And those of you who have been in my Sunday school before know that there, it's always fraught with danger when I turn to a passage because I don't always... My dyslexia sometimes gets the best of me. 12 through 16, and this is Nathan has come to David. And he's, he's explaining to David that David uh, was going to make a temple for God and, and God puts the kibosh on that. Verse 12, when your days are completed, you'll lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth for you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me when he commits iniquity. I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, for the throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. It speaks not only of the life of Solomon, who did need discipline and correction, right? He did a lot of things wrong. And God spoke, I'm going to correct him, but I'm not going to correct him like I did Saul, who I had to remove, and we started over with a new line. I'm going to correct him, but your line, David, is going forth. So those two people named son of David, the Bible is very clear. There's an immediate son. Matthew tells us that Jesus is in that line that flows from that son, and there is an eternal son that reigns in the kingdom forever. So this title, son of David, at the beginning of Ecclesiastes should make us not only think of, of the immediacy of Solomon's words and the importance of those words as a king in Jerusalem at that time, but also should make us look forward to the eternalness of these words. Son of David is a title of the covenant of God with the ruler in Jerusalem. Now, I've mentioned Jerusalem a couple of times, and the text does as well. King in Jerusalem. So, not Sunday school answer, where have we seen kings in Jerusalem before? What's it referring to? David's the easy one. I'm going to take that one off the table. Number one answer, David, king in Jerusalem. Because Solomon's also going to declare that, uh, verse 16, I said to myself, behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And you're thinking, well, there's one, right? David set up the kingdom in Jerusalem, so he's, he's smarter than David. That's not true. There's others who were kings in Jerusalem. Melchizedek. Melchizedek is mentioned in Genesis. As you remember, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, and thereby through his seminal headship over all of the line of Aaron, he was submitting to Melchizedek as his priestly head. That's in Genesis 14, 18. 
jump back to Joshua then. Does anyone know the other one? Actually, I think it's in Judges 2. Make sure I get the right... Kind of a fun story if I've got it right. Now it came about when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and had utterly destroyed it, just as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, and that the inhabitants of Gideon had made peace with Israel and were within their land, that he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were mighty. And then this king, Adonai Zedek, then sets forth to try and protect his city. And we won't go into that story. So Adonai Zedek and Melchizedek. What's the common thing in their names? Zedek. Zedek. Oddly enough, I just saw that like and I was reading a fictional book. And Zedek was the location of it. And I was like, wait a second. That town's named after Jerusalem. It's just on a different planet. Anyway. Um, book to be released later. You can ask Ethan about it. All right, so we have these names, Melchizedek and Adonai Zedek. In fact, Adonai Zedek means what? What's Adonai? Lord. He's Lord of Jerusalem. So when Solomon says here that he is the son of David, he's speaking of being in that covenantal line and that he's king in Jerusalem and that he has more wisdom than all the kings. It goes back a long, long way. This goes back to Abraham at least, and probably even before then. Now, it also answers some questions just on the side about who Melchizedek was. Melchizedek didn't live forever in Jerusalem because there were other kings by the time Joshua came around, um, had, had taken over that land. He wasn't an eternal figure that never died and held the city forever. Um, but again, I don't want to get too distracted by that. This is who it is that's giving us this information. The preacher has gathered these things together. He's conveying them to us. And he holds this position of not only authority as king in Jerusalem, but also as the one through whom the line of the ultimate rulership of all of us, specifically of the Jews, and then through them ruling the rest of the nations. This is the authority that he has. And much the way Paul when he starts one of his letters, lays out his authority to tell us these things, Solomon has done the same. And he starts with this phrase, vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And he, there's that exclamation in between those two phrases, says the preacher, says the one who's gone out, gathered up all this information, put it all together, and is now giving it to you. I am the one who has the authority. I am the one who has done the research. And it's all vanity. It's vanity twice over. And I'll say it again. Now that word vanity there is actually closer to uh, a word that we had used is futility. And I think the reason the translation gets made to vanity is because vanity tends to carry with it this idea that it's on display. When you think of somebody who's vain, it's not just that what they're doing is futile, it's that what they're doing, they're, they're looking at the externals and what the world looks like or what they look like, and they're putting that on display when there really isn't much worth to it. 
It's putting futility on display. And that's what, that's what the book of the Ecclesiastes are, is here is the futility of life on display for all of you to see. An example, and I'll try to get through this, an example would be the futility for those of you who attended Jack's funeral. The example would be the idea that you can learn more is true in a house of mourning than in a house that's, that's rejoicing. You can't. But what a screwed up world that that's where we have to learn, right? Why is it that we have to learn there? It's because this place is futile. And we're going to see that over and over again. It's one of the dangers of quoting Ecclesiastes and using it as wisdom without having it attached to the fear of the Lord and what God is trying to do and and where your focus needs to be. Futility on display is the word vanity. And that's why I think the translators took it from the Hebrew and, and, and stuck in the word vanity here. That, it sounds awesome. I mean, vanity of vanities. I just I love the, the sound of it. So how is it that everything became futile? This is where we're going to blend into our Roman study. And before we do that really quick, I included verse 3. Verse 3 is a section break in most of your Bibles, but, but I think verse 3 is is really key to the introduction, and that is, what advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? And that under the sun is a term that you're going to see used to describe life here on earth apart from what happens in heaven. If you remove heaven from it, what is life like under the sun? I think really quickly we degrade into the Lion King, where you know what, son, it's just a circle of life. We live, we die, next generation comes along, they do the same thing, and we go up into the stars, and you can see us up there. Talk about futile and depressing. We give that to our children as some sort of encouragement, I guess. Be sad if that's where things are at. But why, where did this futility come from? Most of you are thinking, well, the Garden of Eden, and you'd be right. Romans, as Paul is explaining the futility of life and how God stepped in to that futility. Romans 8, 18 through 21. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What is happening under the sun is not worthy to be compared to what's happening under heaven. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. That would be the believers. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So this futility that's spoken of in Ecclesiastes we, we would be wrong to think that this is something that's been created by man. We sinned, we made the world futile. No, we sinned and God then subjected nature to futility. And that's what we live in. So as you read through the futility, the, the things in, in Ecclesiastes that point out, hey, the, don't pursue that, that's not worth anything. 
That's vanity. Don't do that. That's vanity. Don't try to get riches. That's vanity. Sex, that's vanity. Pleasure, vanity. It's not just because we sinned and caused that. No, it's we sinned and God then is the one who placed all of creation and all those things. There's a reason that, that, that God says all things can be enjoyed with thankfulness. You do it with the right attitude. You can enjoy all those things, absolutely. But God is himself has subjected these things to futility for this time. All the things under, under heaven. So what isn't futile then? Where do we find... How do we live then if, if it's not futility? And I think this is where I would like, through God's grace, um, to just go through where it is that things aren't futile. Because we can, we can learn, we can study Ecclesiastes and carry it through, and when we get to the end, he's going to explain this very simply. The, the, the answers in Ecclesiastes are, are as, as concise as the answer that was at the beginning of Proverbs when he placed it in Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Knowing and understanding what God's doing is where our answer lies. If we stay there, if we go back to, I guess, Romans 8, if you, if you left there. Romans 8. Jump forward to verse 28. I almost feel like we don't even need to study Ecclesiastes as we, we're going to walk, walk through about four different passages here in Romans. Because we're going to have the key, we're going to have the answer, which is really nice. We'll still go back and do it, but it'll be a lot easier having this in the back of your mind. What is the answer to this futility that we all face? Romans 8, 28 through 30. And now we know that God causes all things. And the earlier manuscript just has God. We know that all things work together, but, but some of the manuscripts will have God causes in there. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. And again, I think there's some power there as you read through this. If you were to, to read it in the original, you'd see that to those who... It, it would say this, we know that all things work together for good. That's all things. Work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to purpose. There are those who are apparently called and they have a purpose. And it's according to that purpose that they live. And all these things that happen under the sun happen for a purpose. You can see the tie-ins here. The futility of creation earlier in chapter 8. And now at, the, at, at this portion of chapter 8, we're seeing the answer to that futility. It's as though, as though Paul was reading through the, the Old Testament text at the time as he's writing to the Romans here, trying to explain to them how salvation works and why it works. Verse 29 will carry on because it certainly doesn't seem like all things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to purpose or according to His purpose. How does this work? Verse 29, For those he, whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be, that is Christ, his son, 
would be the firstborn among many brethren, and these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom, and, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If all these things that happen to us, if they're hard, if they're difficult, how do we answer it? How do we answer the futility of the life we live in? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? That's in life. That's in light of the terrible things that can happen in this life. There's this, and I, and I have to tell you that, that a lot of this is me wanting you all to know how do you deal with things when they're terrible. You have to know this. You have to have strong footing underneath you if you're going to get by. Because there's a lot of crap we walk through in this life. And you need that underneath you. You need the strength. And this is where the strength comes. When things seem futile, when things make absolutely no sense, when the pain is absolutely unbearable, this is what we're called to turn to. This amazing chain that, that comes from heaven and links us to God. And allows us to know this isn't, this isn't for academics to sit and discuss what are the five points of Calvinism. That's not why God gave us this. He didn't give us this so that over coffee we can have interesting conversations and talk about, well, what does MacArthur say? Or what does Adrian Rogers say? He gave this to those of you who are hurting and want to know, why is it these things happen? And so I speak to those of you who need that. And those of you who, who find this interesting to just discuss and work through, and uh, it's an academic exercise, I'll take you there. I'll take you there, and, and, and I'll open the Word of God and show you that as an academic exercise, it works out too. Those he foreknew, that foreknowledge is actually the God looking through the corridors of time. Those he foreknew... He also predestined. This isn't just God knew what, how the ends are going to work out. This is now God planning the means by which all those things happen. He knows them. He predestines those to become conformed to the image of His Son. When do we get conformed to the image of His Son? It's when we are done with this life. When we're removed from this weight of sin. When we're saved to sin no more. Great hymn. If you sing hymns that don't make you think, sing different hymns. Saved to sin no more. When we're conformed to the image of the Son. So all of them that He foreknew, He predestined. All of them He predestined will get conformed to the image of His Son. And all of those He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, He called. And clearly this is a call that's an effectual call that actually takes these things. He reaches down and he says, you. And there's nowhere in here where it mentions our response to this. In fact, it says that those he calls, he justifies. And it kind of alluded to this, that that justification that takes place is 
then going to lead to glorification, that being conformed to the image of His Son. It's all working towards that. Everything you experience in your life as a believer is working towards that. And just like when we gather today to sit under the Word, under the preaching of God's Word, it's not because, well, hey, we do a really good job of honoring God. It's because God said, I'm going to give you the Word and it's going to be preached. And if you think that, that we have some sort of control over that, you're going to have to explain to me why it is all these churches across our land, why you have to hunt to find a church that preaches the, the Bible and does it well. You can say, well, they're unfaithful. And I'd say, well, according to Amos, God removes the preaching of his word from people that are not obedient to him. It's actually a God thing that we have this opportunity today. This is the link that you need to be able to get through tough times. And I, and I do want to go back to Romans 5. I know we just covered that. Because there's that word justified, and that word justified, it's like, well, when did that happen? How is it that you're justified as a believer? Let's go back to Romans 5, verse 6. And if you look up at verse 1, you're going to find out he's talking that we are justified by faith. We have peace with God. So this, this passage is talking about believers. So at verse 6, while we were still helpless, while believers were helpless, all of those of us who are saved, Paul's saying, you Christians in Rome, while you were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare to even die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. Who's the us? The believers in Rome that he's writing to. The we at the beginning of this. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood. Wait, where did that happen? Where were we justified? By his blood. When did that happen? When he died. The death of Christ, the blood of Christ, the atonement of Christ is for the believers, according to Romans. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Those whom Christ died for are saved from the wrath of God by his blood. We're saved from the futility of this world through the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. So when we go back and we see those he foreknew, he predestined, and those he predestined, he called, those he, just, he called, he justified. And Romans 5, 6 through 10 gives us how does that justification take place. In fact, the rest of Romans 5, Romans 5 tells us what happened on the cross. Those who are justified are glorified. There is no weak link in this chain. And you know what would bring a weak link into this chain? Is you or I having a say in it. Raise your hand if you want your eternal destiny determined by your volition. No, thank you. Raise your hand if you want to be the one who decides the atoning work of Christ will be given to individuals 
based on your decision. No, thank you. That and God doesn't do it because it's not about us. What if God, totally capable of displaying his wrath on everyone, decides to take some and display his glory through those on whom he has mercy? Again, Romans, Romans 5 kind of starts this as we progress. Romans 8 builds it up, and then Romans 9 through 11 explains how this works in individuals, specifically uh, as, as a nation of Israel. How did it work in their history, and how does it work going forward for them? Just goes through the, the richness and the depth of this, because this is a hard thing to swallow. And it's in the middle of Romans 9, 22 and 23. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Thank goodness that that is true. But all of this, all of this leads to this, this, whole, this whole argument Paul is making starting, starting there in chapter 5. A, a, for sure a difficult chapter, but not a, not a chapter you can't understand. And then works us through 8, 9, 10, 11, and it comes out That as you study these words, you get to the end of, of chapter 11. And before Paul launches into chapter 12, where he says, okay, now in light of everything, starts chapter 12 with, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, do all this stuff. Before he hits that, he gets to verse 33 of chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Who was first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. As we look at the futility of this world as it happens under the sun, and you're trying to find a foothold in your life, That needs to be that God is good and he is ultimately in control of all things. That's what you hold on to in this world. And the, the ultimate demonstration that it's all about God is our salvation. Our salvation was wrought by the Father in eternity past as he set forth a plan that includes slaying his own son before the foundation of the earth and call the people to himself. 
It truly is all about God. For those of you who know these things and believe these things, give, give glory to God and be humbled. There is no more humbling thing than what I've just shared with you. Because it means that, that the best in your life is from God and the worst things in your life are from Him as well. And I'll come back to the prayer that Joel prayed that morning on the 11th. We get both from God and we give Him glory and we give Him praise. So those of you who know these things, hold on to them tightly for a day when you need it. For those of you who don't know these things, and this is all crazy talk, For those of you who don't know these things, the means by which we enter in that is faith. Now, that faith is from God. He gives it to us. Just call out to God. That's all it takes. Turn to Him and believe. That's the means by which all of this is applied, and it always is. If you've heard this multiple times and you still have rejected you're in a scary, scary part, part of your, or you're in a scary, scary position because the world is full of futility. And the fear of the Lord includes being afraid that I'm a vessel that God wants to use to display his wrath. You don't want to be that. Turn to God. Have faith in him. Believe in him. Turn to the Son. Kiss the Son. Christ wins in the end. He wins. He rules. He reigns. And it'll be a majesty like none you've ever seen. And just a quick aside, because I've got a couple extra minutes. When you're in there singing this morning, just remember, it should sound more like a chief's game than it should sound like we're mourning. <laughs> when you sing, holy, 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 the angels are all surrounding the throne room of God. We're learning this in Revelation. Singing the praises of God. The triumph of God. We're the church and we will be triumphant. I encourage you in your life, hold on to these things and know that if God is for you, who can be against you? As you walk through and you see the futility, take hold of it. Be conquerors because we are. We're conquerors through Christ. But it can be hard. Be close to those who need the understanding, to those who are don't have everything figured out yet, be gentle, be kind. But when things are really, really hard, fall back on what you know of the Lord, that he has a plan and that it works out for his glory and that you who believe are a part of that and you're, you're inescapably linked to God and his glory. Grab onto God 